0: We remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, believing it is not the Word of men, but it is the Word of God given and preserved for us. We come to Mark chapter 14 this morning, and once again, because I'm giving an overview of the chapter, I want to um, draw your attention to several verses in the chapter. Uh, So we'll begin with Mark 14, verse 1. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Then down to verses 6 through 8. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body in burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And then verses 22 through 24. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And then we'll go to verse 38. Jesus says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Over to verse 48. Then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then verses 61 and 62. But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. We continue on in the exposition of the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, coming to chapter 14 and as I have said over the last few weeks uh, I lament having to uh, give these overviews and not being able to go back and follow through with the full exposition but so that we might uh, be able to complete the gospel uh, I've had to just uh, give you the overviews uh, uh, coming to the last few chapters and you'll note if you will in Mark chapter 13 last week the concluding verse 37 ends with Jesus summoning command What I am saying to you all, I am saying to all, be watching, be watching out, be staying awake. What did Jesus mean, watching out, staying awake for what? Well, I want to take a moment to look back in, in a few verses in chapter 13 to keep the context here because Jesus unequivocally is warning us against looking for signs of his second coming and the end of the physical world. I mentioned that to you last time in chapter 13 that we get really off base and we get preoccupied with the very things that Jesus says, don't do this. And so unequivocally in chapter 13, as Jesus says at the conclusion, be watching out, be staying awake. I'm saying this to all believers. What he's saying is don't be looking for signs of his second coming and the end of the physical world. That's not what we're to be preoccupied with. So in chapter 13, look at verses 4 and 5. Tell us, when will these things be, the the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. So right off the bat, he says, Look, pay attention. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived by this. And then if you will, uh, look at verse 7. You will hear, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But, what? The end is not yet. How often are we confused? People saying, oh, it's got to be the end. There's wars. There's going to be this war here, that war there. There's an earthquake. Snakes are crawling, blah, blah, blah. What did Jesus say? The end is not yet. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled by these things. Look at verse 9. But watch. Watch out! I meant to tell you, if you'll look at the textual note that I have in the uh, study notes, there are four different Greek words that are used throughout chapter 13 for watching, observing, seeing, staying awake. Jesus is repeating this. I don't think it's just a stylistic uh, writing of Mark. I think Mark is trying to give us nuanced meaning and application of what Jesus is saying. So in verse 9... Watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. This is what you're to be watching out for. Look at verse 14. Jesus goes on to say, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Jesus validates for us the Holy Scriptures as the inspired word of God and as Daniel is a prophet speaking beforehand... And speaking directly about what Jesus is saying is going to happen that he's telling them about, the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming by the Romans within that generation. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus localizes this both in terms of time and place. And then uh, look at verses 21 through 23. Then, if anyone says to you, look, another one of those words for watch out, look, stay away. If anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or look, uh, there he is, do not believe it. So, Jesus tells us right here don't be fooled by those who are clamoring and constantly saying, Jesus is going to be here or there, Christ is going to appear or has appeared. Don't believe it. Verse 22 For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders, deceiving, if possible, even the elect but take heed see i have told you all these things beforehand are we listening to what jesus has to say about this look at verse 32 but of that day and hour regarding his second coming of that day and hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father and note if you will particularly verse 33 take heed watch and pray for you do not know when the time is. And then on, it is like a man going in a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore. What are we supposed to be watching for? For you do not know when the master of the uh, house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the, crowning of the rooster, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping... And what I say to you all, I say to all, watch, watch out, stay awake. So this theme is certainly very developed in chapter 13 of Jesus directly telling us we're not to be looking for signs of his second coming. What are we to be looking out for? What are we to be uh, watching? How are we to be staying awake? Well, what Jesus emphasizes and illustrates is by faith. Watching out and staying awake. Not falling asleep and thereby, thereby going off the Christian way or the Christian path. We have a colloquial expression, don't we? Don't, don't fall asleep at the wheel. And sadly, that uh, colloquial expression is born out of sad consequences that we see regularly. People fall asleep and run off the road, don't they? They run off the expressway. They, they run into other people. We see this sad reality. But the point is being made here is that spiritually... By faith, we are to stay awake and to be watching the promises of God, watching the Word of God, watching what God tells us to be doing and not be fooled or deceived or go off the road. And so we go on into chapter 14. Mark gives a series of comparisons and contrasts between the flesh and the spirit, applying, continuing to watch out and stay awake, By prayer. So in chapter 14, look at verse 34 where um, we read, Jesus said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. So Jesus is telling uh, the apostles who accompanied him into the Garden of Gethsemane as he divided their company, but he told them all to be staying awake and praying and watching with him. That's what we're to be watching out for. We're to be watching Jesus. We're to be entering into prayer. We're to watch and be directed by him and what he teaches and tells us, us and tells us to be doing. And so, if you will look again at verses 37 through 38 of chapter 14 as samples here. When he came and found them sleeping after Jesus came back to where he had left Peter, James, and John, he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch? One hour, could you not watch out? Could you not stay awake in prayer with me for even an hour? Verse 38, watch and pray. Watch out, stay awake, be praying, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So this is what I'm saying to you about the theme and the arrangement of chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark that Mark gives us a series of comparisons and contrasts between the flesh and the spirit, applying, continuing to watch out by faith and staying awake by prayer. And so chapter 14, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is seen by faith as the ultimate Passover deliverance from sin and death. That's what we're to be watching. That's what we're to be focusing on. That's what we're to keep before us. Deliverance from sin and death. The flesh is weak, but in the spirit we pray and we focus on who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done. We can never get enough of that. We must always be watching Jesus as he's revealed to us in Scripture. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. The truth of Christ. The truth as it is in Jesus. We're looking for the truth of who Jesus is and what he teaches us and how he directs us. So in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 14... We see that there are religious unbelievers in the flesh plotting for Jesus' murder. But there is a repentant believer, a woman, unnamed, who comes to Jesus in faith anointing him for his death. Uh, You know the story that criticism was given of her because she took that very costly oil. She broke the alabaster box and and anointed Jesus' head with it. And there were those who were saying, chiefly led by um, Judas, as we read in uh, synoptic accounts, that this was a waste. This money could have been uh, used for the poor if we just sold that oil. And what does Jesus say? No. Why are you troubling this woman? She has done a good thing. She has anointed me in uh, preparation for my death. How much she understood that, I, I don't know, but Jesus gives her approval. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached in all the world from that time forward, there will be a memorial for her act of anointing Jesus in terms of his coming burial. Now, I want to point out, and I don't have time to develop it here, but Jesus says it will be a memorial to her wherever the gospel is preached. And then later on, we have Jesus in the same chapter instituting the Lord's Supper to us. And there's an interesting um, study here in terms of the Lord's Supper not being, or at least being more than a memorial. What this woman has done, this act, is not repeated It was a one-time act that has meaning in reference to Jesus' death, and she is memorialized in that act. But Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper as a sign and seal of the new covenant in his blood. It's more than a memorial. And we don't have time to develop that thought, but it's important that you see it. Going on to verses 10 through 16, in terms of watching Jesus and the contrast that, that Mark gives us in this chapter, watching out and staying awake, we see that Judas in the flesh is planning... His betrayal of Jesus. But the disciples in faith go and prepare for the last Passover. And uh, again, comparing those details, how uh, Judas goes out in secrecy and plots this uh, betrayal. But once again, Jesus sends a couple of disciples that are unnamed and he tells them to follow someone that they'll find with a pitcher of water and go to that house and say that the master has need of the upper room. And all of this in the providence of God and witnessed by the Holy Spirit demonstrates how in faith they act in preparation for the last passover and then in verses 17 through 26 again watching jesus and how we are to be watching out and staying awake in prayer and in worship we find that judas in the flesh is condemned for sinning against god by the covenant of works jesus says woe unto him it would be better if he'd never been born But going back to his accountability to God, Judas is accountable. God did not make him do that. We have a warped and twisted view of God's sovereignty because Scripture tells us that God is not accountable for sin. There is no darkness in God at all. God does not sin, nor does He lead others to sin. So Judas did this following his own nature. And in his nature of rejection of Jesus' messianic claims, he in the flesh goes to betray him and he is accountable to God under the covenant of works. And what a, what a woeful thing to be said. It, Jesus saying of Judas, it would be better if he'd never been born, but you can't be unborn. There's a, a deep, deep passage in uh, Job chapter 3. I've been working on it for a long time. And J- Job isn't just lamenting the day of his birth there. It's far deeper than that. Job goes to the point of wishing for annihilation. Job is wishing that he was, could be unraveled in his being. But the point that's being made is that once there is conception, there is no unraveling. There is no unbeing. You think about that for a while. When was the incarnation? when the divine nature of the Son of God came into union with the human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary at the moment of conception. There is no unbeing. There is no unraveling. There is no going back. And Jesus says regarding Judas, there is no unbeing. Judas will account to God under the covenant of works for his betrayal. But Jesus confirms in faith God's redeeming grace by the new covenant as he institutes the Lord's Supper and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And then on into verses 27 through 42, again, as Mark puts this together for us and how we're to be watching Jesus and watching out and staying awake, we hear the apostles protesting in the weakness of their flesh when Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. You're all going to be scattered. You're all going to leave me. And they begin to, uh, to protest and say, no, no, we'll die with you. But Jesus counsels them rather than protesting and trusting their flesh and, and uh, bristling up and saying that they would never do it. Jesus counsels that they should be prostrating themselves in prayer, watching in the spirit. And that's another application I think is very valuable to us. Before we get our back up and begin to lash out and in our flesh think that we have that upper hand. Have we been prostrate in prayer? Have we been bowed and humbled before God? And I'm not talking about just the posture. Whether you pray on your knees or pray in your chair or whatever. That's not the point. The point is in our heart. Is your heart and your mind bowed to God? Are you prostrate in prayer? Is that a continual watching and staying awake in terms of your humility before God? Don't trust the flesh. It's so easy to get entangled in the flesh and for ego and self to be um, so powerful in our lives. Again, I'll go back to Job 3. I've been doing a lot of study and thought on Job 3. One of the things that has really struck me is um, Job 3 really sets out the theme of the, of the rest of the um, book of Job. Now, I know that Job is often presented to us in terms of the suffering of the righteous. And yes, that, that is propelling the story of Job, but there's something else going on. As a matter of fact, I think the, the, the book of Job and the Hebrew poetry probably delves more deeply into the psychology of what we could, could begin to approximate of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus in mind and soul, and Jesus who knew no sin becoming sin for us. As Job gives expression to the depths of his soul and his struggle and his concern and his, his hurt and his wound and his, his uh, mistrust, His abandonment, all these things that are going on in Job's soul. And what it really comes down to, and what is is demonstrated in Job chapter 3, that's carried out through the rest of the book, is that we're left with two alternatives in terms of human thought either unbeing or unselfing. And so it's understandable that the world looks to unbeing. The world counsels annihilation. I just heard this very week uh, uh, an interview with a, a famous um, conservative journalist who has an um, article in the paper, uh, in one of the papers every day. And they were interviewing this particular journalist, and he's known to be very conservative. As a matter of fact, he actually has a, a Down syndrome child. And he talks about the value and the worth of that particular child, his son, who has lived quite beyond his life expectancy. And he's talked with glowing and deep and affectionate love for this this son. And yet, he has a view of annihilation. There's nothing after death. I don't believe in God. And so there's nothing of uh, any uh, hope. He believes in unbeing. Now, how can you... Reconcile that with thinking the value of his child and standing for conservative values, uh, um, moral values, and yet bankrupt in terms of faith. There is no God. There is no afterlife. There is no value. But I love my son, and he's made the world a better place. You see, this is the world's alternative to unselfing, and that's what God calls us to. Through Christ, we must all be unselfed to be a new self in Christ. But the world rejecting that has only one desperate hope to cling on to. It's the most desperate of all, unbeing. And that's a, that's a fantasy. That's a falsehood. So, Jesus counsels us to remain prostrate in prayer. And then you see again in verses 43 through 52, Mark sets before us watching Jesus in the way in which we're to be watching out and staying awake is that rebellious unbelievers in the flesh pervert the demonstrations of loving affections. Have you ever taken note of how Jesus is identified? A false kiss, a gang comes out with clubs, and spears under cover of night, intending on gang violence. And then we have this very cryptic description of a young man who followed them, who when this kind of suddenly took place, he jumped out of bed and just threw a sheet around him and followed them and he was discovered and they tried to grab him. And as a matter of fact, he had to run and he was stripped of the sheet that he was wearing. And I want to tell you the intent on grabbing this young man was nefarious. I believe it was going to be an attempted rape. That's the kind of ugliness that was going on in this gang that came out after Jesus. And you can see that in this there is the perversion of those demonstrations of loving affection. A kiss isn't for betrayal. Gangs come together in violence trying to force community and compliance. And oh, how desperate it is in our own communities and society that rape runs rampant. All these things are perversion. A perversion of the demonstrations of what true loving affections are supposed to be. But in this, we see Jesus' example, that in the spirit, he resists the flesh, and he specifically references submitting to the scriptures, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus in his humanity unselfed and said, Not my will, but your will be done, Father. And that's what the next section is about. Jesus praying and saying, Not my will, but your will be done. And we watch and we see Jesus as we have the flesh denies confession that Jesus is the Christ. This is where the flesh will lead you. We have the religiously self-righteous denying that Jesus is the Christ and bringing forward false Witnesses trying to trump up charges against Jesus. They can't find any agreement. And so finally the high priest puts Jesus under oath. This is the only time that Jesus will respond to him. But in uh, along uh, contemporaneously with what's happening here, there's another substory going on with Peter. Remember Peter as a believer, and yet Peter gives in to his fear of shame. Jesus told him this would happen. And the story unfolds where jesus uh, jesus is taken to the the high priest quarters and peter is in the courtyard and he's discovered uh, maybe he had gone there selling fish or for whatever reason but one of the little maids recognizes him and says you're one of them you're one of the galileans and peter denies jesus i don't know him and he goes out to warm himself, standing there by the, the fire, and there are those gathered around, and they've heard Jesus, or they've heard Peter speak, and they say, Of course you're, one of, you're a Galilean, your speech betrays you, we can tell where you're from. And Peter denies them and curses. The third time, he is again identified, and, and Peter, out of shame and fear, denies the Lord Jesus three times, and the rooster crows a second time, and Peter, remembering what Jesus said, When in his flesh he said, I will die with you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. In your flesh you're going to deny me. And Peter wept, showed repentance. We know of the story of his being restored, but through repentance. And yet here in this part of Mark 14, Mark is warning us to be watching. Watching and staying awake because the flesh denies confession that Jesus is the Christ. In your flesh, you cannot confess that Jesus is the Christ. Only by the Spirit can we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, our Savior, and not be ashamed in times of fear and threat. So the Spirit's presence and power for self-denial is shown in Jesus' sinless confession to be the Christ. As the high priest says, I assure, I put you under oath, I command you in the name of my office as high priest, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. I am God. I am the Son of God. And so Jesus' confession is to be the sinless substitute sacrifice, the ultimate Passover Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we're to be watching. That's what we're to be praying. That's what we're to keep focused on so that we don't run off the road being misguided and deceived or preoccupied. But rather we're to focus on Jesus the Christ. So the gospel mystery, that's where the word sacrament comes from. That's why we refer to the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. It's a mystery that God has identified for us, a mystery that has attended to it God's covenant promise. It's a sign and seal. It's more than a memorial. We're not just remembering something that happened in the past, but rather attending it is the promise of Jesus that by faith he is more real to us than bread and wine are to our body. So the gospel mystery of the Lord's Supper not only dramatically displays the covenantal theology of redemption, it it shows it to us. It's a sign and seal. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the true sacrifice. Jesus alone can answer the type for the reality in heaven as the Lamb of God. And so the Lord's Supper dramatically displays the covenantal theology of redemption, but it also... Dramatizes Jesus' summons to watch and to stay awake. When we come to this Lord's Supper, and I know we're not having the Lord's Supper this morning, but as we routinely every other week have the Lord's Supper, we're to be reminded that it's a way of watching. When we have the Lord's Supper, we're called to faith, to see in this bread and to see in this cup, beyond physical elements, to the spiritual reality that by faith these are identified to us for what the body and the blood of Jesus are for our salvation. You can't be saved by eating bread. You can't be saved by drinking a cup of wine or juice. But as a sign and seal in faith, you can be saved by union to Jesus, the Christ, the Lamb of God, and by his lifeblood as a voluntary sacrifice to cover your sin's guilt from the covenant of works. You're you're condemned under the covenant of works in your sin. The only escape from that is the covenant of grace by the redemption that is in Jesus' blood. And so the comparison and the contrast of conflict between the flesh and the spirit develops throughout the New Testament as the writings of the New Testament direct us to this theology as one of the main themes of New Covenant Christian Gospel The life of faith in opposition to the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is what Jesus says you're to be watching out for. This is where you're to be staying away, Because the world is against you. Jesus said it was against me, it's going to be against you. The flesh is an ongoing struggle that we have. Even the remnants of the old person in the remaining corruption of the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And beloved... We're to follow the Lord Jesus and be attentive to the Holy Spirit. That's the only spirit we need to know about. Because the devil is our adversary. And like a roaring lion, he goes about seeking whom he may devour those who are unwary, those who are uncautious, those who are silly, those who want to play around with things that God says stay away from. So Jesus tells us don't be foolish. And hearing these conflicted voices that are always telling you, Jesus is here, Jesus is there, Christ is going to appear here, here's a new date. I saw a funny meme that said there is a new position at the Christian bookstore, someone that is constantly updating and taking off the shelves the expired prophecy books. Date setting. How many revisions? How many revisions do you think we should be allowed for a date setting book for the second coming? Just listen to what Jesus said. Don't listen to it. Don't be deceived. Don't be looking for signs of the second coming. Be looking to who Jesus is, the author and finisher of our faith. And by that, stay awake and living in faith against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll continue with chapter 15 next time coming to the conclusion, wanting to make sure we get the Gospel of Mark finished. But I hope that you will take, and as I mentioned to you even this morning, I hope that you will take um, these study notes from chapter 14 and compare them with uh, Psalm 27. I think you'd find that to be a very rewarding and useful uh, way to study Scripture. We'll turn then to our parting hymn this morning.